Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 9 to the end of the chapter verse 31. Go on up a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. God, as we open up your word here, as we unpack this large, amazing, glorious portion of your word, 
God, I pray you'd speak to us. And I pray that you'd give us a vision of who you are, that you are great, you are mighty, and you are gracious and good and merciful. God, come now. Pour out your spirit, I pray. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Free us from the enemy who would love to come and take what's spoken and just steal it so we don't gain any profitable thing from this morning. God, come, we pray. Have your way in this place. Use my lips to speak your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting a new series. Started last week, going through uh, Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. And just to remind you a little bit about the context, Isaiah is writing to future captives who will be taken captives and be exiled to Babylon. And he's speaking to them in their captivity that God is coming to comfort them. God is coming to uh, give them grace and comfort in their exile, in their captivity. Now, they were brought into captivity or taken into captivity, I should say, because of their own sin, because of their own idolatry. And yet, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their captivity, in the midst of their slavery, God wants to speak a word of comfort. And so the beginning of chapter 40 says, Comfort, speak comfort, says your Lord to his people. So comfort is the overarching theme of chapters 40 to at least chapter 55 and probably all of, all of 40 to 66. But as you read through these chapters, you begin to see what this God is like who speaks comfort. You begin to see amazing, breathtaking views of what this God is like. And two things that we see coming out in chapter after chapter after chapter, I mean like side by side by side, is that this God who speaks comfort is a God who is incredibly great. He's not a little God. He's really big and great above the heavens. And yet he's also incredibly gracious. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the God who speaks comfort is powerful, so his comfort matters, right? And he's also gracious, so he can actually come to us in our difficulty or come to the, the, the people of Judah in their difficulty and his, and, his, and his comfort means something to them. He is both majestic and merciful. And so from week to week, I want us to see and unpack this, these themes, this God who speaks comfort to us is a God who is breathtakingly great and majestic. And yet he is also amazingly gracious and merciful. He is so compassionate. He comes to us in our difficulty and gives us comfort. And we need to see God's greatness and we need to see his grace. We need to see his greatness because apart from his greatness, apart from a view of his greatness, we will be impressed with much smaller things. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself impressed with much smaller things than God. John Piper says this. He says, if, we don't, if, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with the streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, like last night, You'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. 
We need a vision of God's greatness, of God's otherness, that he is so majestic, so great. And chapter 40 for me is like a bedrock chapter in the Bible that shows us just how amazing, how big, how great God is. But it also shows us how incredibly gracious and merciful and compassionate God is. So from this series we're doing, I mean, my longing, my desire, and I feel like it's God's desire, the desired outcome, at least that I see, and I feel like this is God's heart, is that we would be moved to deeper and greater worship. Right? Our worship would be higher, it'd be greater, it would be deeper, and we would be moved to deeper and greater and higher trust. And we'd be moved to deeper, let me put it this way, we'd be moved to to a more courageous and radical life. So, jumping into our text for this morning. The first verse that we looked at, verse 9, says this, Go on up a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God. Isaiah says, Behold your God. In other words, Isaiah is saying, Look at your God. Look at what he's like. Here is your God. Open up your eyes and see what your God is like. Your incomparable God, your indescribable God, your otherworldly God. He is incomparable. This God that is our God. Isaiah says, behold your God. So this morning, I want us to look at God. I want us to see God. I want our eyes to be opened. And I want to say to you over and over again, here is your God who is incomparable and is worthy of your trust and your worship and your life. So, God, the God I want, you to, want us to see this morning is incomparable in his greatness, one. Second, in his wisdom. Third, in his sovereignty. And fourth, in his power. Let's look at these one at a time, okay? First, he is incomparable in his greatness. And Isaiah, it's almost as if he uses exaggerated imagery for us to make a point. But you can't exaggerate God, can you? Look at verse 12. Look at what it says. So, behold your God. This is what your God is like. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Look at how great your God is. I was going to say big, but... Great sounds better, I think. But look how big your God is. Look how amazing your God is. Look how great he is. A guy named J.B. Phillips wrote a book uh, sometime maybe in the 80s or something that says your God is too small. Isaiah's God is not too small. And I want us to see this God and behold this God who is great above the heavens. What does it say in verse 12? He holds the waters, or excuse me, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. In the hollow of his hand, he measures the waters. Did you know the Pacific Ocean alone? The Pacific Ocean alone. I don't know how they measured this, but really smart people. 
figured it out, or at least give or take trillions, I suppose. The Pacific Ocean alone holds somewhere around 187 quintillion gallons of water. Okay? God holds it in his hand. That, and that's just Pacific Ocean, okay? Add the Indian Ocean, the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, all the seas, all the lakes, all the rivers, okay? Lots of water. 187 quintillion gallons in the Pacific Ocean alone. God holds the waters, or he's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Not only that, Isaiah goes on to say, and he's marked off the heavens with a span. Okay, so he holds water in his hand, or he measured the water in the hollow of his hand, and he marks off the heaven with a span. A span is from your tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky finger. Hold up your hand like this, okay? Not, not that big, right? God has marked off the heavens with a span. I, the distance from even just you know, the world to the sun is, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of miles. The distance from, I looked this up, Luke is very interested in the Andromeda galaxy, so I was like, okay, what's the difference between Earth, what's the, what's the distance between the Earth and the Andromeda galaxy? Luke probably could have told me off the top of his head, but I didn't have him there, so I asked Google instead. And here's, what, here's, here's the distance, okay? Earth to Andromeda galaxy, 14.6 quintillion miles with the hollow of his hand. Now, scientists have said, and I don't, I don't think they know this for certain, but they say there may be up to 125 billion galaxies. With a span. He marks off the heavens with a span. And if that doesn't impress you, then look at this. Later on in verse 12, it says, He weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. He weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Now, sometimes I go to the store and I want to get some coffee. And so I, I get the, the, you know, some, some coffee from the health food market where you weigh it. Right? So I get a bag and I pour some in and I weigh it. God does that with mountains. All of them. And hills. Mount Everest alone is estimated to weigh 357 trillion pounds. God is incomparable in his greatness. He is so big. He is so great. He is so glorious. Number two, God is incomparable in his wisdom. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? I think it's interesting how Isaiah asks these questions because sometimes we feel like we do have counsel for God, don't we? If I was running the world, or Ankeny, or Iowa, or the United States, I would do things differently. If, I, if this was my world, I would do things differently. Clearly, Isaiah is asking a rhetorical question. Who measured the Spirit of the Lord? Who gave God counsel? Who consulted God in how to run things? Who gave him understanding? The clear answer is, nobody has. He doesn't need our consultation. He doesn't need our counsel. The British Library, with all of its 170 million items, could not inform God of one thing he is not aware of. 
the greatest policy experts on international or domestic affairs could not fill God in on how to run things better. The most savvy consultant isn't offering God a single thing he lacks. He has perfect wisdom. He is incomparable in his wisdom. The wisest judge on earth will not teach God a thing or two about justice. Stephen Hawking, who's probably considered the smartest guy in the world, at least alive right now, could never clue God in on how quantum physics works. He is unparalleled and incomparable in his wisdom. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows how things work. His knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and justice is unparalleled and incomparable. This is your God. This is your God. This is the God we worship here on Sunday mornings. Look at who your God is. He is incomparable in wisdom. Third, he is incomparable in sovereignty. Verse 21 to 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the world? It is God who sits above the heaven, excuse me, above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, who? Princes and rulers. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither. And the tempest carries them away like stubble. God is incomparable in his sovereignty. When a nation is said to be sovereign, it means that this nation, a particular nation, exercises authority within their geographic boundaries. God is incomparable and unparalleled in his sovereignty. He exercises authority authority in everything that he's made. He is the sovereign ruler over everything. God is sovereign over all that he has made with his hands. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Now remember, Isaiah is writing to those who have been taken, his his primary audience are the future generations of people who live in Judah who are going to be taken off to Babylon. And he's writing to them, those who find themselves in exile, oppressed by an enemy nation. Babylon, we know, is going to come in, destroy the temple, sack Jerusalem, and carry the people of Judah away into captivity. And when God says Babylon's time is up, it will be up. It'll be over. When God says Babylon's time is up, what will he do? Here's what he'll do. He'll bring their princes to nothing. And he'll make their rulers like em- just empty. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. But when their time is up, he's going to blow on them. And the tempest is going to carry them away like stubble. Daniel chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 21. This is written by, obviously, Daniel, 
who is a prophet who is living in Babylon during the time of exile. And Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar, speaking about God. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He removes kings, he removes them, and he sets up kings. He is sovereign over the nations. Later on in Daniel, uh, the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a bad dude, who thought he was pretty full of himself and exalted himself and had this dream and he brought Daniel in to interpret this dream and the essence of the interpretation was, is this. Nebuchadnezzar, you better humble yourself, you better stop sinning, you better practice righteousness or else. And Nebuchadnezzar does not. He's walking out on the palace rooftop one day and he says, look at Babylon, my great kingdom that I have built with my mighty power. And a voice came from heaven and it said, the voice said, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom is taken away from you. And he wandered, lost his mind, became insane, wandered in the wilderness like a beast. And finally he came to, by God's grace, and he says this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised the, and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And the inhabitants of the earth are, are counted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He is incomparable in His sovereignty. He is also incomparable in his power. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Other translations besides ESV have filled in. They just assume that he's talking about the stars, and I think that's probably accurate. He's talking about the, the hosts of stars at nighttime. You look up, you see all these stars. Who's doing that? Who did that? Who's, who put them there? God did. His power is mind-blowing. He's incomparable in his power. He leads them out by night. You know how many stars there are? You're like, no, I don't either. But there's a lot. I, I saw a figure, 70 sextillion stars is what scientists estimate are out there. With the Hubble telescope, they can see and they know that they can see these clusters of stars and they know that there are other galaxies. And you know how many 70 sextillion is? 70 with 21 zeros after it. I think you should be more impressed than that. 
I'm like, whoa! He put all of them there? And he leads them out every night? And not one of them is lost? He knows all of them by name? I doubt he called them star one, star two, star three, star... You know, he knows all of them by name. And Isaiah says, he does this because he's strong in power and he's great in might. He leads them out by night. Now, some may say, wait a second. Now, now we know that we see the stars at night because the earth is rotating, okay? Yes, of course. You got, you got a good point there. But we know that God is not a clockmaker, right? Who made the world, wound it up like one of those old alarm clocks, set it down, and it's just kind of running its course, and things are just kind of turning and moving in motion. No, 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 no. God is actively working in his creation. Isaiah wants to draw that out. God, who's great in might, strong in power, knows all of the stars, and he leads them out by host every single night. He is incomparable in his power. I mean, unparalleled in his power. Who are you going to compare with God? What are you going to hold up and say, this is bigger than God? Or God doesn't know how to deal with this? J.B. Phillips, I mentioned his name earlier, he wrote the book, God's, Your God's Too Small, or I think it's something like that. And he said he wrote that because there's this growing tide that people in our modern age saw that God was incapable of dealing with the problems of the world. Clearly, Isaiah would inform us that God is not incapable of dealing with the world's problems or your personal problems. Isaiah, writing to these captives in Babylon, says, Who will you compare with God? Verses 18 to 20, I mean, Isaiah is just even mocking the whole industry of of idol manufacturing. He says, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. I mean, a human being makes it. Right? A human being makes these idols. Just a little person like you and me. An idol or a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith, another human being, overlays it with gold. Those that are, that are too impoverished for an offering, they choose wood, okay? That will not rot, okay? Good wood at least. And they seek out a skillful, skillful craftsman to set up an idol that won't even move, that can't do anything. And of course, these people, these Israelites, these people of Judah, they were carried off into captivity because of their idol worship. Verse 25, God addressing, God himself addressing, says this, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. I hope you're impressed with God. I hope you're at least saying, God, any idols in my life, show them to me 
because they don't compare with you. Now, we don't bow down. I don't think anyone here would do this. I mean, there, there certainly still are people that do this, but we don't, more than likely, we don't bow down and worship statues. But idolatry is alive and well in our culture, for sure. Many view the ups and downs of the stock market as so big that the God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand isn't sure what to do. Others who view their own personal things going on in their life as so big that the God who doesn't need counsel from us, who has perfect wisdom and knowledge, isn't sure what to do about your situation. I hope that you're impressed with God this morning. But the point of Isaiah 40, and the point of Isaiah 40 to 55, or 66, is comfort. Everything I've said to you so far may impress you, and I hope it does. If it doesn't, then the person next to you will just smack you a little bit. Back of the head. I'm joking. I hope it does. I really hope it does. But what I've said so far, though it may impress you, may not provide a whole lot of comfort. Here's what I mean. A God who holds all the water in his hand. I mean, just take the Pacific Ocean, okay? I don't know about you, but I think of the ocean as like the freakiest thing on earth. Right, Brian? (laughs) I mean... I remember one time we were, Alyssa and I were on a trip, we were snorkeling, and we got to the spot, and right where we were um, was nice, beautiful turquoise water. You could see down all the way, 40, 50 feet to the bottom. But about 50 yards this way, maybe further than that, maybe 100 yards over here, it was really dark, really, really dark water. And somebody in the boat said, why is that water over there so dark? And the tour guide said, well, right here it's 50 feet. Over there, it's 5,000 down. I just remember thinking, okay, don't go on that side of the boat at all. (laughs) The ocean freaks me out. A God who holds it in his hand, just that truth alone, I'm impressed, hugely impressed, but perhaps not comforted. A God who is never informed of anything he doesn't know. He knows everything. He knows my thoughts. He knows my secrets. He knows, he knows everything. Again, it sounds kind of daunting, okay? It's like NSA, big brother. I mean, just, he knows everything. A God who marks out the heavens with a span. <clears throat> I mean, marks out the heavens with a span. If somehow I find my way in his hand, he might just crush me. A God who measures Mount Everest like I would measure coffee at the grocery store is just huge, enormous, great, majestic. But how is this comforting? How is this comforting? It's because this God who is majestic great and powerful beyond measure 
cares for you. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, David says this. He says, God, when I think about what you made, the earth, the heavens, the moon, the stars, everything, he says, what is man that you care for him? Or the son of man that you regard him? But he does. That's the most amazing thing. These stars that are gigantic, 70 sextillion of them, and yet he's most interested in people made in his image. Little, tiny people on this little, tiny planet that he's made in his image. He's most concerned about connecting with us and relating with us and having a relationship with us. It's a wonder of wonders. This God who is great and mighty beyond comparison cares for little tiny people on this little tiny planet. <clears throat> and why does he? <clears throat> I don't know for sure. He certainly isn't lacking anything without us. It's not like we feel some need for God. It's because he overflows with generosity and grace and mercy. So how does this great and mighty God who is huge, incomparable in his wisdom, power, sovereignty, and greatness, how can he provide comfort? Because he's also incomparable in his grace. Verse 11 says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those that are with young. And then right after that it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who? Our shepherd. Our God, who is gigantic and awesome and amazing and to be known trembled before because of his mightiness. He is also our shepherd. He cares for us like a shepherd. He gathers us up in his arms and he carries us close to his heart, right? His bosom is close to his heart. He carries us close to his heart. He protects us. He watches over us. Those that are with young, he leads them gently by the hand. This God that is incomparable in his greatness is also incomparable in his grace. This God that is incomparable in his majesty is also incomparable in his mercy. It's not hard to jump from verse 11 of Isaiah 40 to John chapter 10. Many of you, this, for many of you, this verse will be recognized immediately. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me. No one takes the life of Jesus from him. He is great and mighty. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. I love the story in Matthew 18. Where Jesus is talking to a group of people. And he's giving this parable. That's about, really it's about Jesus and it's about you and me. And he says, a shepherd's out and he has his sheep and he has 99 with, them, with him. And if one, or he has 100, and if one of them is lost, will he not leave the 99 that are safe, leave them and go find that lost sheep? And when he finds that lost sheep, won't he put it on his shoulders and bring it back and throw a party? because he found his lost sheep. This God who is great and mighty, incomparable, that we need to know as great and mighty and incomparable is our shepherd. This is nothing, none other than Jesus himself. He is our shepherd who has led us, you and me. He has led us out of captivity and exile and enslavement to our sin. He has led us. He has brought us out into a place of freedom. So don't say, like verse 27. Verse 27 says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, God's not seeing what I'm, the mess I'm in. He doesn't notice. Isaiah is saying, Judah, don't say that. He knows. He knows where you are. He knows you're in Babylon. He knows you don't like it there. And don't say, my right is being disregarded by my God. He doesn't get it. My rights, I'm being treated unjustly here. I'm being treated unfairly. This isn't fair. Life isn't fair. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Where do you find yourself this morning? In a mess? God sees, God knows, and God cares. He sent Christ, the good shepherd, to die for you, to rise again for you, to give you new life. He's given his Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you, to comfort you, and give you peace. And as you wait for him, He will surely come and rescue. He will surely come and rescue. Don't say to yourself, God, you don't see. Clearly you don't see because I wouldn't be here if you didn't see. God, clearly you don't care about what's fair and what's right and just because I'm not getting justice. I'm not being treated fairly.
Verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord. Shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is being written, obviously, to people in exile. They were in exile for 70 years. And so the first ones that were in exile reading this, they were saying, wait for the Lord. Okay, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. I'm waiting. I'm waiting, right? No doubt they wanted the captivity to end like yesterday, right? But wait, Isaiah says, when it is time, when God says it's time, the princes will be brought to nothing, their rulers will be brought to emptiness, he will blow on them, and the wind will carry them away like stubble. Wait for the Lord. And those who wait for the Lord, verse 31 says, they receive strength, strength to get up, right? If, you, if you've fallen down, strength to get up. You'll receive eagle's wings, eagle's wings so you can soar, so you can soar through difficulty, right? You ever heard, you probably heard this before, but eagles, what do they do? They, they can fly so high in the air they, they fly over storms. They don't need to camp out like, you know, in, a, in like a mountainside when the storm comes. I mean, they might do that too, but they can fly over the top of storms. So the storm is happening. Eagles fly over it. You receive eagles' wings so that you can mount up and soar. And you will run without weariness and walk without fainting. Because for sure, the road that we are on as believers, we are not in exile like the people of Judah. Nevertheless, the road that we are on calls for endurance, calls for perseverance, calls for walking without fainting and running without growing weary. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You've heard that perhaps before. So Jesus, our shepherd, will come. He'll give us strength. He will carry us close to his heart, which will enable us to soar and get through any storm, soaring over it with Christ. The storm is happening, but we are safe with our shepherd, God and shepherd, Savior. And he will cause us to run without weariness and walk without fainting. Psalm 23 says this. You know Psalm 23. Many of you probably do. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's a part where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It doesn't say if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It says, even though I do walk in this place of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. Jesus, our good shepherd, will lead us 
Like a shepherd, he'll lead us to safety. Like a shepherd, he will protect us. Like a shepherd, he will keep us. Or I'll say, like a shepherd, he will lead you to safety. Like a shepherd, he will protect you. Like a shepherd, he will keep you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are totally incomparable. I mean, we just can't compare. We can't hold anyone or anything up to you. It doesn't hold a candle to you, God. You are so amazing and glorious, indescribable, incomparable, great above the heavens. God, you are amazing. And you are also gentle like a shepherd who scoops up your people, scoops up your children in in your arms, and you hold us close to your heart, and you lead us to safety. Gracious God, I pray you'd open up our eyes to see that you are great, that that idols, things in our lives that we just exalt as big and insurmountable, we would see them as so small compared to you, and that they'd be cast down today. God, I pray for us. I pray for, I pray for some here today who find themselves in a mess. God, I pray that you'd come to them as they wait for you. You'd come, come to them, that you'd cause them to mount up with wings like eagles, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not faint. In Jesus' name, amen.